investing in a redundant and resilient grid is something that really pays off not only economically, but related to the health and safety of our citizens and our customers. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to remind you that prices for EEI 2022, our Thought Leadership Summit, will go up on May 23rd. Register today to get the best price. EEI 2022 will take place June 20th to 22nd in Orlando, Florida. You can find registration information on our website at www.eei.org. EEI is proud to support the United for Infrastructure Lead with Infrastructure campaign this week. Electric transmission infrastructure is the backbone of the nation's energy grid and will play an essential role in facilitating the continued transition to clean energy. EEI's member companies are making significant investments in the energy grid to enhance resilience, while also integrating more clean energy resources and new technologies throughout the system. In today's episode, we'll learn more about transmission infrastructure from our guests, Phil Moeller, EEI's Executive Vice President of the Business Operations Group and Regulatory Affairs, and Larry Gastiger, Executive Director of WIRES, a trade association that promotes investment in the transmission system. Phil and Larry, welcome to the show. Well, Brian, thanks for having us. And it's a it's an honor for me to be on with my friend Larry Gastiger, who I've known and worked with for a long time. And thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I'm, uh, Phil, I am, I'm looking forward to having a discussion on some of these big transmission issues we're facing. So to get into some of the issues we're looking at, EEI recently published a new report about the value of transmission. Phil, can you tell our listeners about what this report focuses on and what can be learned from these case studies? Well, thank you, Brian. Yes, we put out a report every year on the value of transmission. There's a lot of focus on the cost of transmission, but the value of transmission is profound. And many of the benefits that transmission provides greater resiliency, redundancy, optionality for how our power system changes over the decades is not actually monetized. So we focus on that value. And in this case, our report focused on several projects in a bit of detail that most people probably aren't used to in terms of the complexity of how these systems were upgraded or built or what was entailed with moving certain structures and getting the, the necessary approvals. And so it's a, a good report that gives a, a relatively small snapshot on a few projects that again, highlight the challenges and the difficulty, but ultimately the benefits that are provided by increased transmission. You talked about some of the complexities of the system, Phil, but Larry, could you actually talk a little bit maybe about all the key stakeholders who are involved in building and maintaining the transmission system? Because that certainly adds to the complexity for projects. Yeah, I was just gonna say that's that's a really complicating factor to some of the challenges related to getting transmission built because there are so many stakeholders and players who are involved in the process of getting a transmission project built 
put into service uh, and then maintained. Um, and you know, you start with first of all the project developer themselves. Obviously, they're a critical player to you know, getting this sort of type of infrastructure done. But it extends quite broadly beyond there to state and federal regulators who are involved in having to provide approvals associated with getting these projects built. Uh, you have the regional entities that are involved with some of the planning aspects associated with it. And oftentimes they'll host uh, many of the stakeholder events where uh, input is received from some of these different groups. Uh, you have uh, environmental groups uh, that are interested because of a lot of the siting and uh, permitting uh, issues associated with the projects. Uh, you, of course, you have um, affected uh, communities and landowners who have an interest in this type of infrastructure. You have uh, consumer and customer groups who are looking to have input uh, as they're gonna wind up often shouldering the bulk of the costs associated with these projects. Uh, you have labor groups uh, who are gonna be involved in uh, critical aspects associated with both the construction and the ongoing uh, maintenance uh, issues associated with transmission. Um, you have the suppliers and vendors uh, who are involved in um, the process of getting this infrastructure built. Uh, and then there are some, some newer issues, um, actually issues that have existed for quite a while, but I think are getting increasing focus that are involved, including um, groups or organizations that are, are focused on issues associated with things like environmental justice. So you, you, it really runs the gamut in terms of the number of stakeholders and players that are involved in getting this type of infrastructure built. And it seems like a, a big regulatory center of gravity is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And in April, this is of course pretty timely, FERC released a new notice of proposed rulemaking, which I think you and your friends called NOPERS, on transmission planning and cost allocation, which you've kind of mentioned the complexities of both there. And the proposed rule aims to address the need for the nation's energy infrastructure to be more resilient while also achieving cost savings for customers. So as part of this NOPER, FERC is revisiting some existing policies that were set in order number 1000. So Bill, can you explain a little bit about your experience with Order 1000, as well as what EEI's views might be based on what we've seen so far reviewing the NOPER? Yes, Order 1000 was approved by the Commission in 2011 in an attempt to try and expand the nation's transmission system. And it's really had very limited impacts, at least positive impacts. Some would argue that it's actually thwarted transmission development, not because that was the intent, but how it actually has played out. And Part of it goes back to Larry's earlier answer that what makes transmission especially difficult to build is that there's a role for the federal government uh, related to FERC and the approval of those tariffs. That's the charges that are incurred when people use the transmission system. But the states have a gigantic role in this. They are usually the ones that are citing these projects, and some states have a one-stop shop for siting. Some don't. That makes it more complicated. They ultimately have to approve, in many cases, the, the rates of the utilities or the energy companies that are actually building and constructing and energizing these systems. So that complex set of state-federal relationships makes it more challenging. And what we're very happy about is that the FERC focused on more longer-term planning with the states having a bigger role so that we can anticipate where the generation needs are, where we're going to get the power from, looking out 
farther because these are assets that are in the ground for 40, 50, sometimes longer in terms of how many years they're in service. So you have to do some anticipation of what those needs will be uh, in the future when you're building out such a complex system as the transmission system. The other aspect of the NOPR, the proposed rule, is that they have modified something called the federal right of first refusal. Kind of a mouthful, but prior to Order 1000, energy companies had the first opportunity to build these facilities. That was modified in Order 1000 and arguably has resulted in less transmission being built. The commission proposed that this right of first refusal be modified so that the incumbent energy companies that already run the system will still have the right to develop projects first as long as they develop them with someone else. We think that's a very positive development that we hope will lead to a more robust expansion of the transmission grid. If the federal right of first refusal for projects is updated, would that help electric companies advance their clean energy goals? Absolutely. And I'd be curious what Larry says about this, but ultimately the incumbent energy companies that already run the system know the system. They know how to do it. They have the procedures in place to get this infrastructure, massive, important infrastructure built. And we feel that they'll be not only in the right position to get it built, but if things such as storms and natural events and other catastrophes occur, the energy companies that are out there now, they're the ones that send the the line workers to repair these facilities. And that's very important going forward. Yeah, and Phil, if if I could just follow on with that, I think uh, you're absolutely right. And and Wires would be in complete agreement with everything you were were saying. Um, I I think from our perspective, what was really interesting with the NOPR was the FERC's clear recognition, at least from the majority of uh, the need for a massive build out of transmission over a relatively short period of time, we're talking probably the next two to three decades, uh, in order to meet a number of pressing priorities and challenges that the country is facing uh, between trying to meet uh, clean energy goals or clean energy mandates that have been established at either state or federal levels, uh, trying to address the challenges of an increasing electrified economy that the country is seeing, Uh, And then, as you mentioned, some of the, and I just put it under the broad umbrella of resilience issues uh, that the grid has been facing and that are increasing uh, in recent years. Some of the estimates show that uh, we're going to potentially need to double the size of the existing grid between now and 2050. And if you think that it's taken us you know, over a hundred years to get to where we are now, and we're looking at trying to double that in less than half the time. I I don't think I'm exaggerating to equate this to the equivalent of a moonshot effort that's gonna be required uh, during that time period to meet those types of needs. So with FERC recognizing that, I think there was a clear emphasis overall with trying to focus on how do we get transmission infrastructure built that we're going to need during that fairly short time period. And and in my mind, that was a major factor on their revisiting of issues like uh, the right of first refusal that came out of order 1000. I I think it's fairly uniform uh, that 
people are agreeing that Order 1000 simply wasn't working uh, in terms of the uh, implementation of the competition concept uh, that came out of that. I think FERC, frankly, was quite right uh, to recognize that and step back and re-examine the issue. So uh, from Wire's perspective, uh, we certainly didn't see any need to expand or, or double down on a competitive process that really wasn't working already. Uh, and as you su suggest was in our view, probably inhibiting in some instances getting transmission infrastructure built. Uh, not just to step back, but then also to re-examine it and provide some opportunities perhaps for uh, expanded use of rights of first refusal uh, at a time where we've got this kind of level of infrastructure need that's gonna be required. We need to go with what we know has worked. Uh, and as you say, uh, a lot of the incumbent utilities, those who have experience building transmission, um, they're the ones that we're going to have to lean on and lean on heavily in order to make this happen. Uh, it's not the time for experimenting or spending another decade trying to figure out what might or might not work under what type of, uh, of, uh, of a theoretical approach. Uh, we need to go with what's tried and true. So from my perspective, I, I think the commission on that issue was, is moving in the right direction. And, and I'll just add, Brian, that we've talked a little bit about the challenges of building transmission, but they are there are many. And Larry talked about the stakeholders involved. But first, you have to figure out the need for it, which isn't necessarily easy. And then as part of the process, obviously, there's siting and permitting. And it becomes it's become more and more challenging in this country to build things. So that's a factor. But the other issue is who pays for it. We call it cost allocation. And it's particularly thorny because these are multi-decade projects and loads will change and flows will change over those decades. So there's some art and there's some science in figuring out who pays. But obviously, some people don't want to pay more than their share. And figuring that out is a challenge that the FERC also addressed to make sure that there are cost allocation procedures in place, probably differing between regions, so that, again, there can be agreement on, there's general agreement on the need, but then the agreement as to how it gets paid for is very critical. And one piece I might add as well, as we talk about these projects being built there's only a limited universe of the suppliers who make the equipment, the engineering firms, the people who do the environmental reviews and the companies that actually do a lot of these big construction projects. So at the end of the day, you do end up having a lot of the same people doing the, the actual work of building the infrastructure itself. That's exactly right. One of the premises of Order 1000 is that if there was this competitive process that was injected, that it would lead to great cost savings. And we haven't seen that because as you noted, there are only so many companies that do the engineering, the construction, there isn't a lot of room there. The trade-off is that the delays that have been incumbent in order 1000 just aren't worth it when you point to the urgency that, that Larry expressed. And on the urgency front, I, I think it's fair to point out that this is a priority for Congress as well with the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act or IIJA or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill uh, called many things. But what it did was provide a, a whole lot of wins for the sector. And that included $65 billion of investment in energy grid infrastructure and really the largest investment in clean energy transmission in history. So Larry, how will this funding 
be used to support transmission development? And when might we actually see some of this funding being put to work for implementation? Uh, there's a number of programs uh, that are included within the uh, IIJA, and um, DOE is in the process of starting to try rolling some out. Some of the ones that I think are going to be more focused on transmission and transmission needs are uh, there's a $2.5 billion re revolving fund to facilitate the development of eligible projects uh, that's really going to be focused on um, new or replacement high capacity transmission lines or increasing the capacity of existing lines. Uh, it has some different tools associated with it, including loans. Uh, there's an anchor tenant concept uh, associated with part of it. Uh, there are some public private partnership aspects to it. That's one program. Uh, there's a $5 billion program and grid hardening grants. It's a, it's a $1 billion per year allotment over the course of five years. Um, this also is set up in a way where half of it goes to states, half goes to industry. There are certain uh, component, uh, I believe it's 30% for a small utility set aside. Um, and, and the real focus on that is gonna be things like wildfires, hurricanes, and things of that nature. Uh, there's a, a, an allotment uh, of $5 billion associated with grid resilience. Again, there are some eligibility requirements associated with that that are focused really more on states, tribes, uh, local governments, and PUCs. There are, there's other funding associated with uh, smart grid grants. So um, the $65 billion is, is allocated in a number of different ways and through a number of different programs. In terms of seeing uh, the funding actually be implemented, uh, that's an ongoing issue. DOE has gone through its own uh, internal reorganization or realignment, whichever you want to call it, including uh, the establishment of some new, some new offices, uh, like an office of infrastructure. Uh, so I think they've had some challenges associated organizationally with that. But they have started to roll out different uh, notices of inquiry or requests for information associated with these pro programs. So the process has begun. I think they are well aware there's a lot of interest uh, from the industry, from states, from um, vendors and suppliers as to how they can tap into these programs. So I do get the sense that they have a pretty strong sense of urgency associated with it but it still feels like it's pretty early in the process right now. And I'll just add that it sounds like $65 billion is a lot of money. Some of that goes to the distribution side, but this is really an attempt on these various programs to provide seed money because the investments that'll be necessary to build out the grid as Larry described will be much, much more than that. But the point is that DOE will be involved with trying to jumpstart certain projects, provide examples of certain creative funding approaches, and we, we're eager to see how it plays out. And it's not going to be overnight, but we appreciate the fact that Congress recognized how important this part of infrastructure is in the nation's larger infrastructure package. And that's, that's a terrific point, Phil. Um, I've described this, while it, it, it does seem like a lot of money, uh, when you look at the projections of the type of investment that will be needed over the next 20 to 30 years, uh, I, I think you can best describe it as, as a good start, uh, but only that. Um, there's going to be much more that's needed. Um, and a lot of that's going to be uh, private capital 
investment, which is how the grid has, for the most part, been built uh, to get up to this point. So in addition to this, there's going to be a lot of other tools that will be needed uh, in order to make it happen. And that's why I think things like incentives or determinations as to how uh, the rate of return for the capital investment is going to be determined. These are all going to be critical pieces that are going to be needed to make this really happen. So I think that's a fantastic point, Phil, and I, I, I completely echo your, your concerns about that as well. And one piece as well, I know Phil EI has been working to break out the amount of investment that's really gone toward adaptation, hardening, and resilience, I, I believe, for 2021, we projected that was around $25 billion. So certainly a sizable sum, but can you speak a little bit to what these, we call them AHR investments are, but can you talk a little bit about what sort of things they go to and, and why those are important to, to understand how we're, we're planning to enhance resilience? Yes, that's a great point, Brian, because as I mentioned in my earlier comments, the more resilience you have, it's obviously good for the system because we've known that the value of electricity is many times what actually people pay for it when they don't have it. And so investing in a redundant and resilient grid is something that really pays off not only economically, but related to the health and safety of our citizens and our customers. So when we talk about the various resilience, adaptation, hardening, we're talking about making the grid stronger, more reliable, more redundant, so that if a certain area gets hit, there's enough capacity to send the electrons in a different direction. It's, it's much like highway congestion. If you are clogged up in traffic, if you have alternative routes, you can get around where the congestion is. If you don't, you sit around, you waste time and you waste money. It's, it's very similar uh, with the transmission system. So these investments are a way to deal with increasingly hostile weather that we've seen, storms, hurricanes, derechos, the list goes on. And if we have a grid that is, again, redundant and resilient, it's actually a great benefit in the long term for our customers. So Larry, are there any particular projects that come to mind, whether they're being constructed now or being proposed uh, that maybe are identified as critical for resilience for the, whatever part of the country they might be serving? I'm aware of a number of projects that are currently uh, under consideration or either under construction. Um, most of them have been focused more, I'd say, on the goals of related to clean energy uh, and trying to meet the mandates associated with that. Um, there are a couple in, in New York that have come out recently um, that were just announced. There's the Clean Path uh, New York project, an $11 billion project, 175 miles underground transmission um, that's gonna bring 1300 megawatts of clean energy from solar and wind um, down into New York. There's another project, $2.2 billion, 339 mile 1,250 megawatt transmission line, also bringing clean energy down from Canada uh, into uh, Queens. Um, those are some of the ones that have more recently been announced. Um, and I think those fit into the, the kind of good news and, and uh, good story category. Um, there's others though, uh, and I wanna to point to one in particular that, that I think demonstrates some of the concerns and challenges associated with trying to get transmission built. And that's 
the uh, New England Clean Energy Connect line um, up in Maine. Uh, that's a $950 million project. It's a 145 million, uh, I'm sorry, 145 mile transmission line uh, that also would deliver clean energy from uh, Canada uh, down into uh, New England, 1200 megawatts of cheap clean energy. Um, that one it was um, fully permitted, uh, already under construction, um, but ran into challenges uh, posed by a referendum process in Maine. And that project's been and halted completely in its tracks while uh, the legal issues associated with it uh, are now being worked out. Uh, and unfortunately, in my mind, that one, the NECEC project uh, is in many ways the, the, the new poster child for how difficult it is uh, these days for getting uh, transmission infrastructure built. And it's, it only seems to be getting more challenging um, by the day. So a question I might've asked earlier, but we had discussed the FERC's NOPER. What would be the timeline, Phil, for presumably there's people are filing comments, there might be response comments. What, what does that timeline potentially look like? Well, proposed rules typically, I'd say, take about a year to implement after they've been proposed uh, to be in terms of a final rule. In this case, I think the commission has signaled that this is a big priority and they're gonna move this a little bit faster. Uh, they do have a comment set of deadlines and then there'll be reply comments. But my sense from what I've heard and Larry may have heard other things is that they'd like to get this done by the end of this calendar year, which would be welcome and would be frankly an expedited timeline compared to the typical way that for uh, proposes and then adopts final rules. So the long running joke in Washington for a while now has been it's infrastructure week because for years, infrastructure discussions and action would heat up on the Hill and then just stall out in Congress. But following the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, can we finally declare that the government is making progress on investing in America's critical infrastructure? We can, and yet it's not going to be overnight. There are so many programs within that bill and we've talked about the ones specific to transmission, but there are many, many others that range from promoting electric vehicles to other kind of uh, classic infrastructure, roads, bridges, ports, et cetera. And putting together the rules and the guidelines that are necessary to actually spend this money is going to take a little bit of time. I'd like to say that, yes, we've finally taken on infrastructure. And I hope this is the decade of infrastructure and infrastructure build out for this nation. And I'll just say the, the, the short answer to your question is yes, um, we are making progress. Uh, but the, the real answer is, is much more complicated. Uh, I think we're making incremental progress. Uh, and given the types of challenges that we're facing with getting transmission infrastructure built in this country, uh, I think it's going to require some level of incremental progress in order to make it happen. Uh, I, people keep seem, seeming to point to individual actions and asking, is, is this the silver bullet to making a, a, a possible for us to get transmission infrastructure done? I don't think there is any one single uh, silver bullet or one single solution to the challenges we have 
um, facing getting transmission infrastructure built today. As we discussed earlier, uh, there, are, there are too many stakeholders, there are too many potential tripwires uh, in the process uh, for it to be easily resolved. So it's gonna be an ongoing process. The, the problem is the needs we have and that we're facing today uh, are pressing and um, the clock is ticking and it's getting louder by the minute. Um, so we need to take action. It's the nature of getting this infrastructure built that it takes a long time. Uh, so we've got some com conflicting challenges associated with this, uh, but yes, it is progress. Yes, I'm optimistic, um, but the hurdles and the challenges are uh, extreme in the least. And when it gets down to the ground level, we really need people to work together. We need states to work together, which means we need to make sure that governors are on board, the economic regulators are on board, and the environmental regulators are on board. Sometimes that takes a little while to develop the consensus and the trust and the compromise involved in getting these projects built. But we do have examples from the past of pre-order 1000 where these projects, very ambitious, can actually get constructed, but it takes that effort and leadership to make sure it happens because of the major role that the states have in getting this infrastructure completed. Well said, Phil. So with how important transmission clearly is to the clean energy transition and, and with all the attention that's going to be on the FERC's NOPER as we it moves forward this year, I think it's safe to say this will not be the last time we're talking about transmission, but I, I certainly appreciate you both making some time to join us today. Well, I love talking about transmission. I always have and I always will. It's sometimes taken for granted, but it's obviously essential to reliable, affordable, and increasingly clean energy that our customers consume. So, Brian, if you invite me back, I'll come anytime to talk about this issue. And same here. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this. It was a great discussion. As I said earlier, lots of challenges. The road ahead looks pretty good, and I'm optimistic that we can get there. But we, as Phil said, we need everybody pulling with the same level of effort on the oars uh, in order to make it happen. Thank you both. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening. And come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.